Amen. Lord, we thank you that we are not just those who have a distant, faraway God that we know about. We thank you that we are your children. We thank you that we've been adopted into your family and that you truly are Abba Father, that we can crawl up into your lap and call you Daddy and draw near to you. And Lord, I just pray this morning that, that as we go to your word now, that you would be our teacher. Father, that it would not be the words of men, but your Holy Spirit would teach us and minister to every heart that's here. Just prepare us, Father God, and use your word to transform our lives. And Father, I do pray, if there's even one person here this morning that has never made a commitment to give their lives to you, that Father, through your word today, that you would soften their hearts and open their eyes to how much you love them. Lord, that you would rather die than live without them. And that, Father, today would be the day of salvation. So, Father, we just set aside again this time for you and your glory. We pray that you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you're new here to Calvary Chapel, welcome. It's good to have you here. Um, the way we do things, on both on Sunday and on Wednesday, we just teach right through the Bible. And on Wednesday nights right now, we're going through the Old Testament. Next Wednesday will be in Numbers chapter 4. So I encourage you to read ahead and, and prepare for Wednesday. And then we go verse by verse. Today we're picking up in Acts chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 13 where we left off last week. But just to catch you up as to where we're at, understand that the book of Acts, as I've said before, is called the Acts of the Apostles. It could also be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the things that the Holy Spirit did after Jesus ascended back into heaven. Then the, the church began, and it began with the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles. We talked about the radical transformation in the lives of these guys who were, who were fearful, who walked around in doubt, who were chopping off ears of soldiers, who were you know, sleeping when they should have been praying. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they become bold and are used mildly for God's kingdom. And as we've continued on through Acts, we saw that, that persecution came as they, they spoke the truth. Thousands would get saved in a single day, but then persecution would come. But through persecution, the church would grow. And we saw that Stephen was martyred, and through his martyrdom, we saw that God used that to touch Saul, as we'll talk about a little bit today. Then we saw that through the persecution that the, the gospel was spread throughout the land, and it went into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And as we're seeing today that the first missionary journey of Paul, now the gospel is going out to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's interesting to me that they hung out in Jerusalem for as many as 10 years, even though the Lord had told them to preach the gospel to the whole world, they got into a comfort zone. I don't know if you as Christians can relate to that. You get on the cruise ship to heaven, you get in the comfort zone, you're just kind of living your life, and maybe you've forgotten about what God has called us to do, which is to reach the world with the gospel. And so that's what was happening in, as we come to chapter 13. That they finally were being, because of persecution, because of the things that were going on, they finally began to spread the Word of God, and they were spreading it without compromise. So last week, in the first 12 verses, we saw in fulfilling the Great Commission, that's what I titled the message today, Fulfilling the Great Commission, if you take notes, that in fulfilling the Great Commission, the first thing that happened was they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Lord is the one who calls us, and if you're a Christian, I just want to make it really clear, God, God has a calling on your life. He didn't just save us so that we might know Him, but He saved us that we might know Him and that we might make Him known to a world that so desperately needs Him. 
And so we saw that they were sent out by the Spirit, and we talked briefly last week about the five different men that were, sent, that, that were ministering in Antioch, this Gentile church. And now they have these incredibly diverse backgrounds, whether it be Barnabas, who was a Levite, who grew up with, with religion, or Simeon, who was a man from, from Nigeria, who may have been the man who carried the cross of Christ, who was a darker-skinned man. Or Lucius, who was one of the church founders, may have even been a reference to, to, the, uh, to Luke. To another guy who grew up in Herod's house. Herod was one of the most ungodly men on the planet. He grew up in his home. And it's interesting to see that a man that grew up with Herod became a mighty man of God. And so maybe you're here this morning and you grew up in really difficult circumstances. I want you to know that God can still use you. Amen? So often we think, well, yeah, but my, my family was a wreck and my parents, you know, was a disaster and drugs and alcohol and all this other stuff was in my background and my parents were divorced when I was a kid and I wasn't raised by my dad or whatever it might be. Manan grew up in Herod's house and Herod was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and was the one that mocked Jesus, and he grew up in that house, and he becomes a mighty man of God. That means God can use you, no matter what your background is. Amen? And then we saw also that among that group was Saul. And we know that Saul began, began being a religious zealot, but we also know that Saul, by, the, by God's grace, was knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus and gave his life to the Lord. We talked briefly last week about the fact that, he, that the key was that they ministered to the Lord. Before you can minister for the Lord, you must have intimate fellowship with the Lord. You know, too many people try to do ministry as, you know, using the, the worldly model or, well, this is the way we do things. Well, let's just follow this model and try to do things, and we do things in the flesh. And the reality is that if you strive to make it happen, you have to strive to keep it going. But if you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that can only happen if you have a love relationship with the Lord. As you're in love with Him, that love's going to pour out of you on the world around you. And then we saw that they went out, and Paul and Barnabas were chosen by God. They responded in obedience, and they took a young man by the name of John Mark with them. And as soon as they went out, who remembers last week? What was the first thing they faced when they went out? Called by God, obedient to the Holy Spirit, they go out to fulfill the Great Commission, and what's the first thing they run into? Who remembers? Opposition. Remember, a man by the name of Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, by the way, it's not what you call yourselves that makes you who you are. Amen? A lot of people walk around calling themselves Christians. It doesn't make you a Christian. And this man's name was Bar-Jesus. which means son of Jesus. But this guy was not a son of Jesus in any way, shape, or form. He was a sorcerer. And he had the ear of the pro-counsel or the governor of the day. And he was hanging out with him. And he was doing sorcery. And as Paul and Barnabas came and began to preach the gospel, this guy got up and began to preached false doctrine, false prophecy, and began to speak against the gospel. And you know, sometimes we think that, you know, if God calls us and we obey Him, we're going to, be go, we're going to go out and we're never going to have any problems, right? I'm going to go to Watsonville and start a church, and this is going to be smooth sailing, no problem. I'm going to go and serve in the children's ministry, it's just going to be smooth sailing. I'm going to start leading worship, oh, it's going to be a piece of cake. The reality is that where God is moving, the enemy is right there waiting, Amen? And God wants to do great things with us, but know that opposition, be ready for it, because it's coming. When you make a determination, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, I promise you, things will, will happen. And so they go out and Bar-Jesus is waiting for them, and we saw last week that Paul didn't mamby-pamby around with this guy, if you remember. Matter of fact, I'll just read the verse to you. Look at verse 9. This guy was seeking to turn people away from the faith, and then Saul, who was 
called now Paul, again, his name went from being exalted one to little, or diminutive one. The, more, the closer he got to God, the more he realized how little he was. It says, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him and said, O full of all deceit, all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the ways of the Lord? Now, Paul, what do you really think? You know, Paul looks at the guy and just says, you're preaching a false doctrine. Now, I want you to hear something today. It is so important that we always speak in love, but I believe that in the church today, in the, in the days of political correctness and moral relativism, we're afraid sometimes to step up and people go, well, man, don't be so judgmental. I spoke at Calvary Chapel San Jose on Sunday night and somebody was very upset that I said the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and, you know, and the Buddhists and the Muslims are going to hell. Oh, dude, man, we, we, lighten up, man. Why you got to be so judgmental? Well, let me ask you something. Is there, can you get to heaven through Joseph Smith? Can you get to heaven through Charles Taze Russell? Can you get to heaven by you know, praying to Allah? Can you get to heaven by, you know, by being a... You can't. And so often, you know, here's Paul. These are examples. This is the first century church. What does he do? He doesn't say, hey, cool, man, as long as you got your own belief system, man, if, if it works for you, you know, go for it, man. It's all good. That's Santa Cruz, amen? You know, whatever, dude, man, as long as you're into it, man, that's cool. That's working for you. Right on, you know? I mean, that's Santa Cruz. And I hear that all the time. People tell me that. If it's working for you, I'm like, dude, you got to do something with Jesus, Amen? And Paul looked at him and heard what this guy was teaching because what he was teaching was not only destroying his own life, but he was seeking to destroy the life of this governor. And you know what? We need to always do it in love and never in a self-righteous way. But Buddhism is a lie. You know, Hinduism, I just came back from India. What a disaster that is. 300 million gods. Doesn't seem to be working out too well for India. I mean, there's such desperation there, and you realize, Lord, it's Jesus Christ. And Paul just goes after this guy and says, you know what, you're, you're, you're a tool of Satan because you're drawing people away from the truth. So we pick up this week, and we saw at the end of verse 12 that the pro-council believed and, and praise God, they didn't believe because of the miraculous works, but they believed because of the Word of God. He heard the Word of God, and he believed. So now we're picking them in verse 13. These guys have been sent out by the Holy Spirit. They go out, they've been called by God. They initially face opposition. And now this morning we're going to see that, that they're going to press on even when others bail out. We're also going to see that they're faithful to preach the Word of God at every single opportunity. We're also going to lastly see the results of being obedient, that there will be, both be fruit and persecution. So let's pick up in verse 13 of Acts 13. And look out, look at again, that being sent up by the Holy Spirit, God's doing great things. They're headed in the direction God's calling them to go. Look at verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. You might read this and think, no big deal. But you need to understand the context of all of Scripture. John is with Paul and Barnabas. He is the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. When they went out, you'll notice that Barnabas' name was mentioned first. Now we get to this portion of the text. Now it says Paul and his companions. Paul and his party went to the the next city. And then you see that John bails and goes home. 
Now the word there for departed could also be interpreted as deserted. And why did he go home? We don't know for sure. It could be that he was afraid. He, he realized, you know what, I thought that, you know, I thought we were going to go down and, you know, just, you know, hand out some cookies or something. I didn't know we were going to have opposition. You know, I didn't think we were going to be sorcerers coming up against us. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, was, I didn't sign up for this program. I had no idea what ministry meant. I just thought we were going to go out and have, you know, a little trip and go see the world. And, you know, and a lot of people do that. They think that serving God is just going to be the cruise ship. And John Mark goes with him. It could have been fear. It could have been that he was homesick. You know, he'd been away from home and he thought, you know, I just want to go home. He was a young man. But here's what I believe. I believe more than likely is he didn't want to serve the guy that was placed in charge. He went with Barnabas being in charge and now Paul's in charge and he's like, you know, I didn't sign up to hang out with this, this little zealous guy, Paul, man. I mean, son of encouragement, you know, cousin Barney. Yeah, that's cool. But, but Paul... This guy's just a little radical for me, and you know, I'm, I just didn't sign up for this. Pro- I'm going home. I'm taking my ball, and I'm going home. Now, I want you to know that, that this happens too often in ministry, that people back out because they don't like the person that's in charge. They look at the person in charge, and they find faults, and they, and they leave. Understand that God is in control, and that every place that's been placed in a person that's been placed in authority has been placed there by God. You know, I've served in several churches. I served in two churches between the two of them for a combined 15 years. Two pastors who were completely different in the way that they did things. And God used both of them mightily in my life to teach me an incredible amount. And I praise God for both of them. And I have to tell you that neither one of them were always easy to to serve with. They were, you know, sometimes difficult. But God allows us to go through difficulty that we might be conformed to His image. And John Mark, instead of learning, do you think he could have learned a little bit from the Apostle Paul? What do you think? But John says, dude, I'm going home. And we know later this is going to cause strife between Barnabas and and Paul because when they go to leave on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, I'm going to go get John Mark and bring him with us. And Paul says, no, you're not. That guy's a deserter, man. Leave him home. I ain't taking him. And Barnabas says, no, really, he's he's older now. He's mature. No, he's not. No. You know, ministry's not for wimps, man. Leave that dude home. I'm going. He's not coming. And we know that Barnabas then took John Mark and went in a different direction. I mean, this was heavy duty. And we see here that as we serve God and we're called by the Spirit, sometimes we're going to be serving Him and people are going to bail. We're going to be serving the Lord and have a calling on our lives and, and there'll be those who are excited to go with us. And then you get there and they go, I didn't sign up for this. And they bail. I want to encourage you with something. You don't allow your calling to be based upon how many people go with you. You plus God is a majority. Amen? If you're on God's side, you're on the right side. And, and you do what God's called you to do. And sometimes you might feel like a voice crying out in the wilderness. You might feel like you're the only one. But I want to encourage you. You keep doing what God's called you to do. Don't take a vote to see how popular it is. And don't allow when somebody else bails out to detour your own walk. I want to encourage you to seek to hang out with those who love the Lord as least as much as you do, if not more than you do. And so others may turn back, but don't be shaken by it. You keep your eyes on the Lord. You keep serving Him. You be faithful to what He's called you to do. You know, in the early days of this church, there were some times where people got discouraged. Can I tell you, I'm, and I mean this, not that I'm some holy guy because I, you know, I blow it. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. Okay, I'm just a man. But I was never discouraged, not one day. You know why? Because I knew God called me to be here. 
And we had eight people sitting in the vet's hall, and we were having to shout over the bongos downstairs, and the people chanting to the moon god, and the lesbian group down the hall. You know, and I just knew, this is where you have us, Lord. It's okay. Because if God calls us, he'll sustain us. Amen? It's the Holy Spirit. And so if people leave and people, that's okay. Pray for them, encourage them, but you do what God's called you to do. Don't allow what someone else does to cause you to stumble in your walk. And so we see here they depart, that he departed and returned to Jerusalem. Now does it say, so they all went home? Well, John Mark's not doing it, I'm out. Okay, that's it. I'm done. You know, I thought we were a team. You bailed on me, man. I'm out of here, right? And I've counseled people in ministry that way. Well, we were going to do this as a team. Bro, are you called? If you're called, you be faithful. Look at verse 14. So we see that, that they're sent out by the Spirit, that they persevere in the face of opposition, and they press on even when others desert them, knowing that the Lord was with them. So now we're going to see them faithful to preach the Word. Look at verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, I want you to see here that led by the Spirit, they go to Antioch and Pisidia. This is not the Antioch that they left from in Syria. This is a different Antioch. Actually, seven cities named Antioch. Okay? But this is a different place. But I want you to know, we look at these words and it says, and they went, they went to Antioch. I want you to know what this meant. They traveled 100 miles north. They went 3,600 feet up through rugged mountain passes. It was an area that was infested with robbers. And so they were led by the Spirit, and they didn't go to the easiest place. They didn't just go to Hawaii and start a Calvary Chapel. Right? They didn't just go to the smoothest place around they went where God called them to go, and it happened to be that it was 100 miles away. Now, they didn't just, you know, jump on the moped, you know, or the motorcycle. Or their, these guys were probably hoofing. And they go 100 miles, they're going 3,600 feet straight up in a mountainside, and there, there's uh, robbers around them, but they knew they were called by God, so they went there. And praise God for people like this, that journey listening to the Lord. You know, it's interesting that Paul later says, in referring to himself in 2 Corinthians, he says that he, though he was called, it wasn't easy. That he, would, he, was faced, he, was, he had stripes faced upon his back, that he was in prisons, he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked three times, he spent a day and night in the deep, he was in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils from his own countrymen, from the Gentiles, from the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger, in thirst, in fasting, in cold, in nakedness, beside the things which came upon him daily. That was Paul's life. And I believe where it's this perils of robbers, it could even be this very act right here. It says this area where he's going, there's robbers there. And I find it interesting that Paul, you don't see him mention all of these things. You see some of them listed, but some of the things he faced, he doesn't even write into the text that he writes in, his own, in, in the Bible. Or Luke doesn't record it in Acts. And I think it's interesting because that wasn't the focus of his ministry. It was just part of what happened in his ministry. He faced persecution. And so he goes up to Antioch, and when he gets there, where does he go? The first place he goes is into the synagogue. Now, how have the Jews been responding so far to the gospel? Some have responded and turned their life to the Lord. But the greatest persecution has come from Jews who want to hold on to the Old Covenant, who want to hold on to the Old Testament law. But where does he go first? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Hey, for the Jews, they had the Old Testament. These guys were prepared. They had the Old Testament. 
They've been studying Old Testament Scripture. They've been making sacrifices that all point to Jesus Christ. And so he went to them first. They had 2,000 years of anticipation of the Messiah. Verse 15. It says, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, people say on. Now, the reading of the law and the prophets, this still happens in synagogues today. When they meet on the Sabbath, they read a portion out of the law. What's the law? What portion of the Bible? First five books of the Bible, the Mosaic Law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? The Pentateuch, if you will. Penta meaning five. So they read a portion of the law and a portion from the prophets. And they would read the law and they would read the prophets. And at the end of which, they turned and they saw Paul and Barnabas, who Paul was a Pharisee before he got saved. This guy was very, a, a religious scholar. And then Barnabas was a Levite. These were well-educated men, and they're sitting in their midst, and they turn to them after reading the Law and the Prophets, and they say, you guys have anything you want to say? If you have anything you want to say, go ahead and speak. Now, one thing you learn about someone who's filled with the Spirit of the living God, when they get a chance to share the Gospel, they go for it. Amen? These guys didn't go, well, maybe next week. Well, you know, it's a football game starting in half an hour. We really don't have time. You know? These guys were there, and they were looking for an opportunity, and they said, yeah. Give us an opportunity. Now, we're going to see again that these guys are reading God's Word, but they don't get it. They've been reading it. They're reading the law. They're reading the prophets, but they're still biblically ignorant to the truth. So Paul's going to give them a, a biblical lesson. And I love this. I want to encourage you with something. Please hear me when I say this. When you witness to people, always start with common ground if you have any. If you're talking to somebody and you find out that they believe that there's a God, start there. If you know somebody that maybe is involved in a cult and they do at least believe that Jesus lived, start there. Start where you have common ground. You know, I was in India, most of you know, three weeks ago, and my, one of the guys who came and waited in my hotel room was a Hindu. And he kept telling me, his name was, his name was Hare Krishna. His name's Hare Krishna and he's a Hindu. You want to talk about some messed up stuff, right? And he comes in the third day and he says to me, you know, I have no hope. My destiny is very bad. I am in the lower caste in India and my future is horrible and so is the future of my children. He said, but I believe in all of the gods. And I said, Harish, it's good that you know that there's something outside of yourself greater than yourself. We can start with the fact that you believe that there is a God. That's good, Harish. But the reality is, there's not 300 million gods like Hinduism. There's one true and living God. We started with what we had in common. That there was a belief that there was something greater than ourselves outside of ourselves. But then we took him to the cross, and two days later, on my last day there, I prayed with this guy to give his life to Jesus Christ. And God is good. But start with what you have in common. You know, we could get up and say, you're a bunch of idol worshipers, right? That probably wouldn't go very far, Right? <laughs> Oh, oh, you a Hindu? Stim me? Worship a bunch of dead blocks of wood, man. What's wrong with you? I don't think I'd get very far with that guy. And here he comes into the synagogue, and he doesn't say, you, you bunch of knucklehead, idol-worshiping killers of the Messiah. He gets up and starts off with the Old Testament. He starts off with the Old Testament and says, let's go back to the Old Testament and let me bring you up to speed as to who Jesus Christ is. 
Let's begin on common ground. Let's begin with what you believe and I believe. Let me show you that I'm a scholar of Scripture. So let's begin in verse 16 and take a look as he preaches his first message. Then Peter stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Hey, by the way, just a side note. You guys are always making fun of me for using my hands when I talk. Some of you, all right? All my staff guys definitely do. Oh, this is Pastor Dave. This is Pastor Dave, right? Look what it says. Well, I just want you to see something here. Then Paul stood up and what? Motioned with his hand. That's good. Praise the Lord. So I'm like Paul. That's good. Praise the Lord. So Paul motioned with his hand, got people's attention. But it says there, he said to them, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Men of Israel would be the Jews, and the, uh, the you who fear God would be the Gentiles that were in the synagogue that had converted to Judaism. So he said, you men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Everybody who's, in my, who's standing next to me. And he begins to preach the first sermon that he preaches in, in the book of Acts. He said, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people. When they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, with an unlifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, watch this. I like this. This is just something God showed me as I was studying last night. It says there, Israel chose our fathers. Which book of the Bible did that happen? Where do we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Which book of the Bible? Genesis, right? Those of you Old Testament, if you didn't know that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's in Genesis. Then look what it says. It says, when they dwelt in the land of Egypt with an unlifted arm, he brought them out. When did he deliver them out of bondage? Which book of the Bible is that? Exodus. Okay? Then it says in verse 18, now after a time, about 40 years, he put them put up with their ways in the wilderness. Which books of the Bible were they in the wilderness? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? He's going right through the Bible. I like this. He gets up and he's like, let me just explain to you. And he just starts in Genesis. Then he goes to Exodus. Now he's got him in the wilderness. Verse 19. And when they had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. What book of the Bible did they enter into Canaan? Joshua. He's going right to the Old Testament. He's educating them. He's taking them to common ground. He's going back and retelling their history. And he's just bringing them step by step right through the Word of God. Verse 20. After that, he gave them what? Judges. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, now Judges. Because after that, he gave them Judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So he goes from Judges, and now he starts to speak to them about Saul. Look at verse 21. It says there, And afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Where do we see Saul in the Bible? 1 Samuel. Okay. Now real briefly, I just want to point something out to you, because I think this is very relevant to what he's about to share with them. Why was Saul made king? The people asked for him. The people said, give us a king. We want a king. We want a king just like all the other nations have a king. And the Lord said to him, God, through his prophet, said, hey, I'm your king. And if I give you a king, he's going he's to take your sons to be his horsemen. He's going to take your daughters to be his cooks. He's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards. He's going to take the best of your grain. He's going to give it to his servants. And in the end, you're going to cry out and ask that this king be removed from you. And you know what they said? Give us a king anyway. We don't care what you say, Lord. We just don't believe. No fear of God. Give us a king anyway. 
So they got Saul, and guess what? Things didn't go so well. Saul did everything that, that God had said he would. He started off well. He was strong. He was handsome. He was good-looking. He won his first battle, and they're all like, see, we got a king. We're tough now. Kind of like you know, our governor, right? Don't mess with California, right? I mean, Saul was like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the day, right? This guy was yoked. And they loved it. They looked at him, ooh, yeah, we got someone we can stand up behind. When they should have been standing with the Lord. They chose Saul over God. And it didn't work out too well. Then it says there in verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up David as king, to whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. When did David, he was anointed king in 1 Samuel, when did he become king? 2 Samuel. Isn't it amazing? He's just taking them right through the Old Testament. He's just bringing them right through. And he's preparing them to say, hey, the people chose Saul, and it wasn't the man God had for them. And then God anointed David. Now watch what he's going to do here. Is he's, going to, he's going to link David to Jesus. Verse 23. For this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Paul links David to Jesus. And the reason for that is that one of the terms used for the Messiah is son of what? Son of David. These Jews in the synagogue knew that the Messiah would have to be of the seed of David. They knew that he would have to be somebody who was from the line of David. And so he goes through the Old Testament, he brings him up to speed, he talks about Saul who the people had cried out for, and it was a disaster. Then he points him to the one that, Jesus, that God had put into place, the true king, and then he links Jesus to David. He knew the scripture. By the way, it's, it's important that we know the scripture, not only that it will transform us, but that it will allow us to minister to others. But look how he refers to Jesus. God raised up for Israel a what? A savior. The word there for savior is, is also could be termed a deliverer. When they were in bondage in Moses, in, in, in Moses, in Egypt, God brought Moses to deliver them out of bondage. And when they were in bondage to sin, God brought Jesus to deliver all of us out of sin. Jesus is the savior. He is the deliverer. And he doesn't say one of many saviors. He doesn't say one of many paths. He says a savior and the Savior is Jesus Christ. Jesus means Savior. His name means Deliverer. And Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the long-awaited Messiah. All that you've seen in the Old Testament was pointing to Him. Verse 24. After John had first preached before His coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So not only the witness of the Old Testament in that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and he was of the seed of David, but there was a forerunner that went before him. And everybody sitting in the synagogue would know that when the Messiah comes, he will be of the seed of David and he will have a forerunner, somebody who will come in before him and announce that he's coming. And so here's Saul, or Paul now standing up in front of them and he first takes them to the Old Testament common ground and links it to Jesus. Now he tells them about John, one who many of them had referred to as a prophet, others struggled with. We know he'd been beheaded. So John had preached before his coming the need of baptism for repentance. He had said, you must be baptized. It says there, John first preached his coming the baptism of repentance. And look at what it says there, for all the people of Israel. Now, what did Israel think they needed to do? They thought they had to make sacrifices. They thought they had to drag in the firstborn spotless lamb, which they did. That was God's command in the Old Testament. And slit its throat and sacrifice the blood. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil into the Holy of Holies? 
It was torn in two. And it was no longer a sacrificial system because the sacrifice had been paid by Jesus Christ. He said, it is finished. And John the Baptist, his forerunner, came and said, it's baptism unto repentance. And why? Not because baptism saves us, but baptism is a picture of what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, for all of Israel. He says, hey guys, it's not the old covenant anymore. It's not the sacrificial system anymore. You must come to God through repentance. And it's for all of Israel. Now, no doubt some of the Jews were offended. Because, no, no, that's not the way we serve. That's not the, that's not the way that we're waiting for the Messiah and He's going to come and overthrow Rome and He's going to prop us up and we're going to rule and reign on the earth. They miss God. But what he's, He takes them, again, starting with common ground, and then begins to open their eyes to the truth. And He points to the message of John the Baptist. Verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, He said, Who do you think I am? I am not He. But behold, there comes one after me, whose sandals, whose, uh, the sandals of whose feet I'm unworthy to lose. John the Baptist was the most powerful, had the most powerful ministry of any man that had lived up to this time. Many people thought he was the Messiah. Jesus said, of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. And John said, I must decrease that he might increase. People came and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And he said, hey, there's one coming after me. I can't even tie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to be his servant, the one that's coming after me. And he was pointing them to Jesus Christ. He's standing in the synagogue. Remember who he's talking to. He, he links Jesus to the Old Testament prophecy. So they all pointed to him. And now he links him to the forerunner. This John the Baptist who all of them would have been aware of. He's letting them know who Jesus is. And he starts with common ground. And begins to open their eyes to who the Savior is. Verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of, father, of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To you the word... The word of this salvation has been sent. I love this. These pious Jews were sitting there. They had their own understanding of salvation. He comes in, brings out their own Bible, their own scripture, and shows them Jesus. Then he takes, brings up prophet John the Baptist who did mighty works that no one could dispute and points to the fact that he's bringing them to Jesus. And now he stands up in this group of these people who are holding on to a, an old, now dead covenant And he says to them, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Was sent first, it says there, to the family of Abraham, but also says to those who fear God. So this word was sent not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. So he stands up and tells them, guys, this is the path to salvation. This is what you must do to be saved. He doesn't say, hey man, if the old covenant's working for you, cool. Long as it works for you, bro, man, that's good. Right on, as long as you believe in something, right? He gets up and says, no, no, no. This word's been sent to you, and this is the word of salvation. This is what we must do to come to know the true and living God. Verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. Now he's going to point back, and now Paul's starting to get a little more heated. He says, hey guys, you know these guys in Jerusalem? You know the big church, the big synagogue, you know, like, kind of like big Calvary and Costa Mesa? He points back to the big church in Jerusalem and he says, hey, these guys have been reading the law and the prophets and they missed the Messiah. And they fulfilled the prophecy in that they condemned him. They would read scripture all day and then condemn the Savior when he came. You know what, guys? I want to encourage you. Don't just know about the Bible. Know the, the, the God of the Bible. Amen? 
There are people that study the Bible and twist it to, to mean what they want it to mean. And these guys were very religious men. They wore the black robes and they did all the religious stuff and they put burdens on people's backs. And you know what? They were dead in their sin. And they missed the Messiah when Jesus came. You know what their biggest concern was at the crucifixion? We've got to hurry up and get him dead before Passover starts. Passover is a picture of the cross. When Jesus died and the angel of death passed over that they might be delivered. And they were, all they were concerned about was we've got to hurry up and, and crucify him so he doesn't taint Passover. They were caught up in religion and they missed out on the relationship. And so often today we see that in the world we live in. People can be very religious. I saw a study a while ago, 87% of Americans claim to be Christians. I don't know, what, what church are they going to? But here's the thing. It's only about 3% in Santa Cruz, by the way. But here's the thing. A lot of people can call themselves Christians. A lot of people can be very religious, but that's not what it's about, you guys. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Is He your best friend? Do you spend 24 hours a day, 7 days a week with Him? Are you in love with our Lord? That's Christianity. Amen? That's what it is. Not one hour a week on Sunday or every other week or whenever I'm not fishing or whatever. Making Him the priority. And so He tells these guys, you know, they missed Him. And they fulfilled prophecy in condemning Him because God was in control. And he even knew what they were going to do. Verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. The fact that he was taken to Pilate was a fulfillment of prophecy. Let me tell you why. How did Jesus have to die? What does it say in the Old Testament? He had to be what? He had to be crucified. What was the only way that Jews could put someone to death? There was only one form of capital punishment. What was it? Stoning. They could not stone him because it was not God's plan. So they had to take him to Pilate. And as they're condemning the Lord, they're fulfilling Scripture. These religious men of the day are condemning the Lord and they're fulfilling Scripture. The very Bible that they had in their hands, the very Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, they were fulfilling it in their actions. Verse 29. Now when they fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. You know, I don't have time to do it, but I want to encourage you. I'm going to quote a couple things from Psalm 22. But Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55. I mean, go through the Old Testament. And you're going to see the crucifixion all over the place. A couple verses. In Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where do we hear those words spoken? On the cross. It says, All those who ridicule me, they pierce my hands and my feet. What's that a picture of? That's the cross. I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my, car- my garments among them and, my clothing, and for my clothing they cast lots. What's that a picture of? The cross. Psalm 22 was written 500 years before Jesus was crucified. Them taking Jesus to Pilate was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And that's what he's letting them know. Hey guys, the guys in Jerusalem, these religious men who had Jesus crucified, they were fulfilling what the Bible said had to be done. But they missed the Messiah. And this word's being sent to you. It's Jesus. It's not religion. It's not Judaism. It's Jesus Christ. We must know Him. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. I want you to see something here, very obvious, but every time the apostles have a chance to preach, they preach the resurrection. And there are churches today that deny the resurrection. There are churches today that say, don't tell people they're sinners. They'll get offended and they won't come back. Guess what? You're sinners. Amen? I'm a sinner. 
right? We're sinners in need of a Savior, amen? And too often, oh man, we can't offend people. We want to get in people's, you know, hey, you know, they might not come back, they might not tithe, you know, we got, you know, we got bills around here. You know, we've we got to water things down. And Paul, you know, Paul doesn't do that. Paul just looks right at him and preaches the resurrection. Guys, if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. Amen? There's no hope of heaven. We're going to have communion in a few minutes. What do we, it's the cross. And he points him to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead. That proves who he says he is. Verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are our witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as is written in the psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, the emphasis is on the resurrection. And he points them back to the 500 witnesses. You know that in Corinthians it says that 500 witnesses saw Jesus after his resurrection and spent time with him. If you get put on trial and 500 people get up and say that you did it, you're going to jail, right? He was driving a red truck. I saw him. He got out and he had a mask on. He got in the car and I saw him. And it's, there's a license plate number and that's him right there. And if 500 people in a row point at you, you're done. Even the OJ trial, would, OJ jury would probably convict you on that one, okay? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. 500 witnesses. And, here's, and when he speaks this, guess what? These 500 people are still alive. This just happened. Hey, 500 people saw him. Go talk to them. Go ask them. He met me on the road. What I'm telling you is the truth. He didn't water down the gospel. He pointed to the resurrection. And that needs to be the emphasis in our churches today. Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. And He says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. This is out of Psalm chapter 2. And He's speaking about begotten from the tomb. He's speaking of His resurrection. Jesus came out of the tomb. Verse 34. That He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. He has raised him from the dead, no more to see corruption. This is a quote from Isaiah 55. And again, they would think of that as applying to David. But let me ask you a question. Did David see corruption? Yes. Didn't he die? Look at the next verse. It says, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 1610, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So they had assigned this to David, but it really applied to the son of David. And who's the son of David? Jesus. He starts with what they have in common. He takes them to John the Baptist and that Jesus is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. He points to the resurrection and shows how that's a fulfillment of Scripture. He's speaking all this to these Jews in the synagogue who are sitting there and listening, much like you're listening right now. And they're going to have to make a decision about what to do with Jesus, just like you and I have to make a decision about what we're going to do with Jesus. Amen? No decision is a decision when it comes to Jesus Christ. And so they consider this to be a messianic psalm, and now he's referring to Jesus. Verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Again, pointing to the fact that Jesus is unique. Hey, we're going to Israel in March. I want to encourage you, if you want to go, there's still room, all right? And when we go to Israel, the last day, we're going to go to the tomb 
where Jesus was buried, and we're going to walk into that tomb, and he's not there anymore. Amen? He's a risen and a living Savior. All other gods that men serve are dead, but Jesus Christ is risen and living. He saw no corruption. He is the creator of the universe. And so, last, I want you to see this here. He's going to call them to respond. Look what he says. Now, any good gospel message doesn't just give them the truth, but then calls them to respond. Look what he says to them. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things for which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So he's, he tells them Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He was witnessed of by John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. 500 eyewitnesses saw him and his body saw no corruption. And now you have to make a decision about what you're going to do with him. And if you believe in him, there's two promises. First of all, you'll be forgiven for your sins. I'll tell you what, may we never forget that. I think sometimes as Christians, we're, yeah, I'm forgiven, but man, aren't you so glad you're forgiven? Amen? Man, I'm so glad that, I, that God's not up in heaven with a scale, and every time I sin, you know, and, and I'll go to church, and it, you know, I'm hoping I, you know, I'll get the scale on the right side before I die. And too many people live that way. We've been forgiven. All of our sin, past, present, and future, it is finished. Separated as far as the east is from the west. Man, I'm so, praise God. And then it says there, not only are they forgiven by Him, but they are justified. Justified just as if you never sinned. Just as if you never sinned. Man, that is so good. That is the greatest news there is. That's better than winning the lottery. Amen? You win the lottery, you win $500 billion. The money's going to pass away. We, we got heaven, you guys. We've been born again. We're filled with the Spirit of the living God. Man, we should live with joy knowing that. Amen? And we see here, he tells them, look, you'll be justified. You'll be forgiven. But you've got to respond. But the law of Moses couldn't do it, he says. Who's he talking to? Jews, mainly, in a synagogue. What do they trust in? Law of Moses. Hey, guys, your good works won't get you to heaven. Hey, guys, come into church on Sunday won't get you to heaven. Hey guys, you know, being charitable and giving to your neighbor, being a good husband, being a good wife, loving people, won't get you to heaven. Why? Because you have an S-I-N problem. Amen? We've got a sin problem. And if God allows one sin in heaven, what does He have? Earth part two. You take one sin into heaven, you've got earth all over again. We're all sinners, so there can be not one sin in heaven, so we've got a problem. What can we do? Our sin must be paid for. Our sin must be wiped away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The message, he's starting on common ground, and he brings them, guys, you're trusting in the law of Moses. It won't get you to heaven. If you're trusting in religion, if you're trusting in, you know, in, in calling yourself a Christian, if you're trusting in the, the faithfulness of your parents, God has no grandchildren. Amen? You must choose yourself to serve and know and love our Savior. A couple, I'm going to stop at verse 41. Look what it says here. Beware therefore, lest, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one of you de- one declare it to you. He then warns and says, hey, 
you're going to perish if you deny this truth. If you trust in the law of Moses, it's not going to be good enough. If you try to get to heaven by your own good works, you'll never make it. And he says then, don't let this be said of you. And he quotes the Old Testament again. He goes back to the Old Testament to Habakkuk one more time and says, Behold you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work by which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He says, beware. He says, it's Jesus Christ. We started with common ground. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the one that can save you. He's the one that can forgive you. He's the one that can justify you. But if you decide to reject Him, consequences will come. Now, I've shared this a few times. There's a lot of new people here, so I'm going to share it with you one last time. It won't be the last time. I don't want to be a liar, so. I'll share it with you one more time. Okay? What does it mean to be a Christian? When I got engaged to my wife, I took her to Shadowbrook Restaurant here in Santa Cruz and, you know, took all my baseball, a lot of my baseball cards and sold them and the money I was making jackhammering a, in concrete and bought her the smallest diamond you ever saw probably. It's all the money I had. And I took her to the Shadowbrook Restaurant, took the last $70 I had to buy dinner. And I took her out to dinner and I got down on my knee in Shadowbrook and I asked her to be my wife. And when I asked her to be my wife, she cried and I cried and she said yes and praise God. And I put a ring, you know, that little speck of a diamond on her finger. And it was my promise to her that we we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. It was a down payment on our marriage. And then some months later, we went, she came down an aisle and, and we said our I do's. And her name went from being Lynette Weir to Lynette Johnston. Now why am I telling you this? Because we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And he didn't propose to us on a knee in the Shadowbrook restaurant. He proposed to us hanging on a cross, nails through his hands, having been beaten and mocked and scourged, his face spit in, crown of thorns upon his head. And he hung on that cross and he says to every one of, in this, of us in this room, will you be my bride? And if we say yes to his proposal, he doesn't give us a, a chintzy ring to put on our finger. He gives us a down payment on heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. Every time my wife looks at that ring, she remembers the commitment I've made to her and it tells the world around her that she's spoken for and that she's my wife. And the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us lets us know that we're going to heaven and we're spoken for, but the way it transforms our lives lets everybody else know that we've been spoken for as well. Now, when you say yes to the proposal, and you allow the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of your life, then and only then can you take His name. That's when you become a Christian. My wife went from Lynette Weir to Lynette Johnston. You cannot become a Christian unless you say yes to the proposal. You don't become a Christian because you live in a Christian nation. You don't become a Christian because you do really good things or you go to church. You become a Christian when you say, Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I want you to be my Savior. Yes, Lord, please forgive me for my sin. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. I know that you're God. Please forgive me. When you say yes to that proposal, you know what's awesome? The Bible says all the angels in heaven rejoice. There's a party in heaven when one person gets saved, amen? And then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And now you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. No matter what you've done in the past, you're forgiven. And now you can call yourself a Christian. You know what? I hope 
that not one person would walk out of this room without knowing for sure that you are a Christian. Amen? Nothing else matters, guys. Nothing else. He created you to have a relationship with Him. We're going to take communion in a minute. And a communion is for believers. People that are part of His bride. People that have been adopted into His family. People that have said yes. And you know what? If you're here this morning, maybe somebody dragged you here. I'm just glad you're here. God bless you. You're here by divine appointment. Nothing happens by chance in God's kingdom. Amen? And I want to give you an opportunity right now to give your life to the Lord. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. If you know the Lord already, be praying for some here who might not. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this clear message that Paul delivered to these religious people. And Father, I pray that the, the message of the gospel would be so clear to every one of us here this morning. Father, if there's even one person that doesn't know you, the Lord that you've brought here by divine appointment, the Lord that you would just soften their hearts right now. And they wouldn't be worried about anybody else, what anybody else is doing or thinking. But Father God, that, that as your Holy Spirit is prompting their hearts, they would respond to you this morning. They would say yes to the proposal of the cross, knowing, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will then come to live inside of them. They'll have the promise of heaven. And then, and only then, can they be called a Christian. So if you're here this morning, and just again, with every head bowed, the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And all I'm going to ask you to do is, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never said, yes, I want to be a Christian. I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven. I'm going to ask you to do something really simple. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand, and I'm going to pray a very simple prayer with you to ask the Lord to forgive you for your sins. Is there even one person here? Remember, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Is there anybody at all? The Lord loves you. He died on the cross that you might have eternal life. Is there anybody? Don't leave earth without Him. Anyone. We thank You, Lord, and we praise You for Your Word. And we thank You, Father God, that for those here who know You already. And Father, I pray that this message this morning would be an encouragement to us of all that You've done for us, that we have been forgiven. Lord, that You have filled us with Your Holy Spirit that we have the promise of heaven, that we're a part of your bride. And Lord, I pray as we go now to this time of communion, that Lord, we would not take it lightly, but Father, we would reflect on our own hearts. We'd reflect on our own walk with you. And then Lord, that we would look back at the cross, the work that you did for us, with a, with a heart of thankfulness for what you've done in realization of our forgiveness. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... All right, just a moment, we're going to take communion, and just real quickly, let me tell you what it is. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, communion's for you, okay? We don't have memberships at Calvary Chapel. You show up, you're a part of the church, that's how it works. But when we take communion, the way we do it here, you just come on up when the music starts, get the elements, go back, and you can take it by yourself, you can take it with a friend, you can take it with your spouse. But what is communion? Communion is in remembrance of what Christ did for us on the cross, the bread is a representation of His body, which was broken for us. His body was broken. Jesus at the Last Supper said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then the, the juice is a representation of His blood. Because what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so as we take communion, God tells us to reflect on our own hearts, examine our own hearts before Him, but do it in remembrance of what He's done for us on the cross. Okay? Let's one more time, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this time of communion, Lord. Help us, Lord, to examine our own hearts. And Father God, just to remember that awesome work you did for us. May it never grow common. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.